basically. Let's go around the horn, and I'll assume if you give me a go, you've got no instrumentation problems. Booster? Go flight. Retro? Go flight. Fighter? Go flight. Control? Telcom? Go. TNC? Econ? Capcom? Go. Surgeon? Go. OMP? Go. AFC? RAO? Go. Network? Go. You got everything up? Hello, I'm Ian Christie, and this is Terranauts. Today on Terranauts, we're back to talking about the history of humanity's journey off the planet, and we're going to go back and rejoin Project Gemini. When we left Project Gemini, it was enjoying the early glow of a fast, clean start. In early 1962, the program had been announced by NASA management and had inherited a good chunk of the Old Space Task Group Engineering Department. The former head of Project Mercury Engineering, Jim Chamberlain, had been named the program manager, and he and the Jiminy Program Office, hereafter known as GPO, had set up shop in Houston, which had been chosen as the site of the new manned spaceflight center. While the center was being constructed south of Houston, near Clear Lake, Chamberlain and the GPO staff had taken temporary offices, well, basically wherever they could find them. Around them, other parts of the NASA manned spaceflight team were also coming to town and setting up shop. It was not only a heady time for Gemini, but for all of NASA, as Project Mercury made history in February when John Glenn orbited the Earth three times in his Friendship 7 spacecraft. It's fair to say that in the winter of 1962, NASA was very much on a roll. Things were moving, and they were moving in the right direction, and they were moving pretty fast. So the Gemini Project Office was in a hurry. In the way these things usually go, while the public saw John Glenn's flight as something announcing a new era, as a new beginning, to NASA engineers both in Project Mercury and in the Apollo and Gemini programs, John Glenn's flight was, in fact, signaling the beginning of the end. Achieving orbital flight, however short, had always been the object of Project Mercury, and now that object had been achieved. Of course, there were other things yet to prove, and many, many, many things yet to learn. But I'm sure already at that time that everybody could feel the focus shifting beyond Project Mercury. The conversations were almost certainly shifting from how to solve unmet challenges to how to solve the, the ones that had already been met, but more effectively or efficiently. Staff who were motivated by looking for new challenges were probably already moving on to the Gemini and Apollo programs, both at NASA and at the principal NASA contractors like McDonnell Aircraft. In truth, although it had gone on for more than a year, by the time John Glenn splashed down, Project Mercury was a little bit more than a year from flying its last flight. After that, U.S. astronauts would be going to space in a new spacecraft and as part of a new program. And of course, that program would be Gemini. And while Mercury flight schedules were not fully settled in February of 1962, it was pretty clear that the end was in sight, and relatively soon. Uh, at least soon, in the world of designing, building, and testing, and launching spacecraft. In that world, 14 months would go by in the blink of an eye. So, if Gemini really was going to contribute to the U.S. journey to space without a major disruption, it had no time to waste. During the original planning, the Gemini team had hoped and planned to start flying by May of 1963, which would have meant there was practically no gap at all between the last Mercury spaceflight and the first flight of Gemini. Even by the time of John Glenn's flight, though, 
it was pretty clear that that original estimate was overly optimistic. And even by then, a new flight schedule was calling for a first flight later in the summer of 1963. In truth, though, this launch schedule was really nothing more than a poorly educated, and as it turned out, wildly optimistic guess. It was also, probably, mostly a warning shot to the procurement bureaucracies at NASA and the Air Force and the major contractors that work really did need to get moving on getting all of the various arrangements and subcontracts in place, because there was an awful lot that needed to get done before NASA's second spacecraft could get to the launch pad. But, as we discussed in the last episode, most of that work would be done by NASA contractors, including the U.S. Air Force, who would supply the Titan II booster for Gemini. So, the early days of Gemini were really spent in negotiating contracts and agreements with various entities outside of NASA. By any measure, progress on this kind of work really was rapid and smooth. By the time the GPO even came into being, the project already had a contract in place with McDonald Aircraft, which would be responsible for the spacecraft itself. Even back in November of 1961, McDonald was setting up its own project office and was getting moving on deciding what resources it would need, include hiring its own subcontractors for systems it didn't have the in-house experience to design or build. As an interesting side note, it turned out that the Gemini engineering manager at McDonnell, Robert Lindley, was, like Jim Chamberlain, an expatriate Canadian and a refugee from the Avro Aero Project. By February of 1962, McDonnell was already placing some of the major subcontracts, including one to Rocketdyne, who was to supply the Orbit Attitude Maneuvering System, which was, effectively, yet another rocket, actually a series of rockets, that would not only control the attitude of the spacecraft, but allow it to perform major on-orbit maneuvers necessary to rendezvous and dock with another spacecraft. Now, this was brand new functionality, one that literally no one had ever tried before, and, spoiler alert, it was going to be a much bigger, any longer and more expensive, deal than Rocket 9, McDonnell, or NASA ever thought in 1962. Similarly, by early 1962, NASA and the Air Force had an agreement in place that let the Air Force start putting contracts in place. By the end of March, all the major contractors and many of the major subcontractors were actually in place. McDonnell was moving out on its work on the design of the new spacecraft. Martin Aerospace was preparing to build boosters in its Baltimore plant. The Aerospace Corporation was on board to help certify that the booster could be man-rated, meaning that it was safe to launch astronauts and not just nuclear warheads. In short, within three months of having been stood up, the project office already had in place all of the pieces it needed to run the program. And this is, uh, frankly, pretty much unheard of in government procurement circles. Um, there have certainly been programs out there, and many of you know whereof I speak, uh, that have not been as far along as Gemini af was after three months, after more than three years of being up and running. But as is always the case, having the contractors in place did not mean that most of the problems had been solved. Oh no, having the contractors in place just meant that now some honest-to-goodness engineering was getting started. And that, my friends, as any good engineer, or as anyone who has ever worked with good engineers, will tell you meant the problems were not being solved. No, no, no. That meant that problems were being discovered. And some of them were, to put it mildly, doozies. By the time that Gemini actually flew, it would need to analyze, define, and solve some challenging problems in subjects such as 
combustion air and engineering and aerodynamics, which is what you would expect on a spaceflight program. But it would also get drawn into subjects as diverse as hydrodynamics, mechanical engineering, chemistry, chemical engineering, material science, human factors engineering, and even the rudiments of the new science of digital computing. The program would also learn a lot of hard truths about going to space, especially with a big and distributed team, one that spanned the United States from coast to coast. Truths that were not nearly as apparent on Project Mercury. And these truths included that you really have no idea how long it will take to design and build something until you know exactly what it is you want to build. The fact that you need to spend just as much time getting ready to test things as you do getting ready to launch. And the fact that there are no small failures during testing. That whatever can go wrong will go wrong, and in a way that will ensure that it has the maximum impact on as many other parts of the program as possible. That everything takes at least three times as long as any reasonable human being thinks it will, and that that number increases the more different people working in different places are involved. And the granddaddy of them all, that programs that take longer cost more money, eventually, inevitably, regardless of what the elected representatives who give you the money want to believe, in which they believe because maybe that's what you told them. In fact, by April 1963, the original target for the first Gemini launch, the program would be a year from its first launch, and even that is generous because that launch was really just a test of the booster and not the full spacecraft. So the actual first Gemini mission would not occur until the fall of 1964, meaning that in the first 14 months of the program's existence, the launch date slipped by a little more than 14 months. So after more than a year of being up and running, Gemini was actually no closer to achieving its first major milestone. In those first 14 months, the program would be reprogrammed, reprofiled, and reorganized. It would see a major change in governance and a change in management. In that first year, every major subsystem, spacecraft, booster, target vehicle, would all have significant problems and incur major cost and schedule overruns and the program would encounter the other major source of uncertainty and doubt that has always plagued large publicly funded programs and continues to be a factor today, disruption in funding. So before going back to talk about all the technical struggles of the Gemini program, we do need to make one more digression into the world of financial, financial administration and, yes, politics. Hold on to your seats, I'll make this as short as I can. All countries have methods for allocating funds to public projects. What I am about to describe is particular to the United States since we're talking about NASA. A quick word of warning, what I'm about to describe is, at best, a cartoon of a very complicated and nuanced system. I apologize in advance to any listeners who spend a lot of time in and with the American federal procurement system if what I say does not really reflect reality as you know it. Um, first of all, what you need to understand is that the U.S. federal government gives agencies like NASA budgets on an annual basis. This funding is provided for a year that runs from October 1 to September 30th and is known as a fiscal year. The annual budgets are generated through a complicated and extremely political process. The simplified version of which is that the United States administration, meaning the president and his cabinet, submit a budget request to Congress, both parts of Congress, the House and the Senate, must first authorize a budget based on, but not limited to, the request from the administration. This sets a ceiling on how much money can be spent. 
then they must appropriate the money to apportion the spending to the various departments. Both in the House and the Senate must agree on these budgets. The president must also agree in that he can veto either piece of legislation if he doesn't like it. In practice, this means that there is a lot of room for political horse trading in the process and that it can take a long time. Budget requests typically arrive in January or February, and it is often a dash to the end to have the legislation enacted in time for the new fiscal year in October. And sometimes, in fact, that doesn't happen. When Congress and the administration are unable to agree to a budget before the new fiscal year starts, something must be done to allow the government to operate, and this is often handled by something called a continuing resolution. Under a continuing resolution, government departments are allowed to continue spending money according to the previous year's budget until a new budget can be passed. Well, in the summer of 1962, such a situation arose. By late September, the budget for NASA had been approved but was stuck in appropriations, and NASA headquarters needed to confront the serious likelihood that they would spend at least some of the next fiscal year under a continuing resolution. Now, for an agency like NASA, which was expanding, that would have been bad enough. For Project Gemini, though, it was a very serious problem. Because, you see, NASA had started Project Gemini in the middle of the last fiscal year using discretionary funds that NASA headquarters could allocate as it saw fit. It wasn't a project at the beginning of the fiscal year. So Project Gemini didn't officially exist when the previous year's budget had been passed. And so it was not eligible to receive funding under the continuing resolution. And since it was growing rapidly, NASA headquarters no longer had the budget to fund it out of other accounts. When this was combined with the fact that all of the major contractors were busily coming to grips with the true nature of the challenge of the project and adjusting their cost estimates accordingly, something had to give. There was simply not enough money to pay everyone the amount that they were expecting to bill the program. So the GPO was told by NASA headquarters that they needed to reprogram the project to avoid putting NASA in the position of spending money that it did not actually have. Now, reprogramming is a term that is used when a program redoes its plan to change how much money it spends and the way it spends the money over time. Usually, this is because not enough money is available in the current year to pay for everything that the program wants to do. In addition to cutting aspects of the project, this usually means that the program needs to be stretched out in time so that the spending can be moved into later years when they can go get more money. In the way of all such programs, that means that the program will not only take longer, but it will, in fact, cost more. And that is what happened to Project Gemini in the fall of 1962. The effect on prospective launch date was, of course, dramatic. The programming pretty much wiped out any schedule of progress that anybody thought they had actually made up to that point, and the expected launch dates immediately slipped beyond the end of the next fiscal year, which meant that they went from the spring of 1963 into the fall. And eventually, by the beginning of 1963, the first launch date had landed in December of 1963, and it was a suborbital test flight. The first manned mission had slipped to March of 1964. In other words, again, after a year of work, Gemini was still 15 months from its first manned launch. 
and that all it had to show for a year's worth of work seemed to be a 50% increase in cost. The other impact was an increasing loss of confidence at NASA headquarters in the leadership of Jim Chamberlain. While Chamberlain was seen as a talented engineer, as Hacker and Grimwood conclude in On the Shoulders of Titan, quote, the talented engineer can always see new ways to improve his machines, but the successful manager must keep his eyes on costs and schedules, even if that sometimes means settling for something good enough instead of better. Or, as it is often put more succinctly, the perfect is the enemy of the good enough. By the middle of March, NASA headquarters was convinced that while Gemini would always be a product of Jim Chamberlain's vision, he was not the man to lead the project to completion. And Chamberlain was relieved of his duties as project manager and replaced by Charles Matthews. So what happened to the smooth, clean start? Well, there is really no one answer to that question, and just about every part of the program was running into difficulties. And they were all different. In fact, in the spring of 1963, it would still be another eight or nine months before most of the significant technical hurdles were truly on their way to solution. Um, the blow-by-blow -blow account of each one of those problems is a little bit mind-numbing, but let's see if we can summarize the main issues. Uh, we can basically break these down into the phases of flight. First of all, there were significant problems with the booster that was going to launch the spacecraft. There were significant problems with the spacecraft itself and its operational systems, including the crew escape system that was very important at the beginning of the flight. There were significant issues with its ability to perform rendezvous. There were significant issues with the target vehicle it was supposed to rendezvous with. And lastly, there were major issues with the spacecraft recovery systems. So, where to start? Well, let's actually talk about the last problem first because it is actually the one problem that eventually defied solution, and that would be the paraglider system. One of the major ambitions of the Gemini project was to allow a change to, a change to the way that it came back to Earth. Instead of coming to Earth on parachutes and landing in the middle of the ocean, the Gemini spacecraft was originally designed to come into the atmosphere, slow down, and then deploy an inflatable wing that would allow it to glide to a landing site under the control of the pilot. Um, the advantage of this system were actually uh, quite substantial. As experience with the space shuttle would eventually show, being able to glide to a predefined landing point and touch down on a runway would massively simplify the recovery effort. And as we talked about previously, the recovery effort for the Mercury missions involved a pretty large effort by the United States Navy and Air Force, running to a few thousand personnel and their ships and aircraft. This effort extended not only to the day of recovery, but also to the trip home that the carrier and its task group would have to make for the return the capsule to dry land. So the idea of a paraglider had been around for a while. It had actually been proposed for the Mercury capsule, but was rejected almost immediately. Uh, for Mercury, it was clearly a case of being too perfect, uh, and when Mercury was singularly focused on the good enough goal of getting to orbit and back again. The logic behind the paraglider was that it didn't seem like a very long step from a deployable parachute to a deployable paraglider wing, and that wing would give the pilot enough control to perform a controlled descent to a predetermined landing site. And the paraglider project ran into trouble almost immediately. As with so many other aspects of Gemini, and as we shall see, 
the problem wasn't actually the design. The trouble started long before the paraglider even ever settled on the design. As with so many aspects of Gemini, and with a lot of space programs to this day, the trouble started with testing. And by that, I don't actually mean that the initial prototypes, you know, failed their initial test. The trouble actually started a long way before that. The trouble started with trying to design and prepare for the testing itself. You see, in order to run tests of the paraglider system, the contractor, North American Aerospace, would need to actually drop some kind of test article from a significant altitude. The test article here is a fancy way of saying some version of the Gemini spacecraft, at least in a cut-down kind of boilerplate way. Obviously, in early testing, these test articles would not be full spacecraft, but they would have to match the spacecraft in some critical ways, like weight and shape. And in short, for preliminary tests, they would still be reasonably expensive pieces of engineering. And they would be provided to North American by the Gemini program. So before testing could even start, North American had to satisfy the program that in the event of problems with the paraglider system that was under test, they would not end up destroying their expensive test articles in crash landings. So to continue down this rabbit hole, that meant that in order to begin setting up a test of their paraglider, North American had to design an emergency parachute rescue system. Further, they had to design tests of that system that it was proved that it was qualified or safe to use on the expensive test articles that NASA was going to give them. So in other words, to get to the point where they could test the system that they were actually designing for the spacecraft, the paraglider engineers had to design a parachute system, and then they had to design a test of that system, test it, and pass those tests. Then they could actually start designing and testing the paraglider. And make no mistake, since the tests of the emergency parachute system were necessary to ensure the safety of the government-furnished equipment, the Gemini test capsules, they would need to be performed formally. Meaning that every test and every discrepancy discovered during a test, however minor, would need to be recorded. I can tell you from having been there that this kind of testing bears almost no resemblance to what you would think of normally as a test. In an informal setting, test sort of implies an experiment. You know, a check to see how things are going. And I'm sure that if you build things in your garage or write your own software code or engage in any number of other sort of creative activities, you frequently stop in the middle and test things to see if they're working. If they're not, it, they usually aren't. You stop the test, find the problem, try to fix it, and then run another test. Okay, this isn't that. The thing about formal testing is that it adds a lot of um, friction to, well, everything. Because having any kind of discrepancy in a test means the unleashing of the bureaucratic forces of quality control. Forces which most engineers learn early on in their careers are extremely adept at sucking up the time, energy, and ability to enjoy life of the average engineer. Engineers preparing for a test learn early on to make sure everything is as close to perfect as it can be before the test is started. If the right parts are not available, the test is delayed until they are. Everything is checked three times, or at least it should be. 
If any part is not exactly in specification, it's sent back and a new one is obtained. Or at least it should be. This, in fact, is what happened when North American began testing the emergency parachute recovery system. Remember, this is just the system they need to design and qualify so they can start working on a test of the thing they're actually supposed to be designing. First, they did some half-scale testing. In a month, they ran four tests. One success, followed by two failures, and then a success. And then the test vehicle electronics failed, and it had to be returned for repairs before another test could be performed in July. That test failed. The half-scale test vehicle was returned for more rework, and the final scheduled test was not actually performed until the 4th of September, two and a half months after testing had started. And this is the half-scale version. And this was probably at least a month and a half later than the schedule called for. Based on those early tests, uh, it was determined that the full-scale parachutes would need to be modified from the original design, which meant they were delayed which meant the full-scale test capsule was delayed. And then uh, range safety became concerned about the safety of the pyrotechnics that were being used as part of the deployment sequence in the full-scale mock-up. So guess what? Those pyrotechnics had to be subjected to a separate test before range safety would sign off and let testing begin. The program then conducted one successful test before two failed tests, at which point they stopped the test and redesigned the system. And that took two months. Then the test of the redesigned system failed, and the test article was destroyed in the process. So, after more than four months of testing, the emergency parachute recovery system managed to demonstrate definitively that it could not, in fact, be qualified to protect any test capsule that North American was provided with by NASA. In order to try and rescue at least some schedule time, North American had come up with a plan to do some actual paraglider testing that did not require the emergency parachute recovery system. Um, the idea they proposed was to use the half-scale mock-up and doing some tests where they just pre-inflated the glider wing and then towed the capsule um, up with a helicopter and then released it at a reasonably low altitude to perform some gliding tests. Well, this sounded like a pretty good idea, uh, and, you know, in a way, it rescued some scheduled time by getting on with testing well, while the parachute guys were getting themselves sorted out. And it would have been if they'd managed to run a successful test, but the test program, which ran in the summer and fall of 1962, was one long list of fails test, failed tests, almost none of which had anything to actually do with the paraglider itself. The test continually failed because the test article was improperly prepared, or the helicopter could not release the capsule, or the helicopter released it too early, or the wrong command at the wrong time caused a crash, or there were short circuits in the control circuitry, or someone forgot to arrive at the test site with a charged battery. Twice. Seriously, the list of test failures reads like some bad movie script. After two months of this, NASA finally called a halt to the hold process, told North American they were not to do any more tests until they could, quote, spell out just what it intended to do about the test vehicle's electronics and pyrotechnics and the company's own checkout and inspection procedures, unquote. 
which is program speak for get your act together and don't come back until you do. A key factor in NASA's concern may well have been that just as Gemini was beginning, North American had won the contract to design and build the Apollo spacecraft itself. And there was a very real sense that the paraglider project had almost immediately become uh, less of a priority. Reading the record of testing, it is hard not to come to the same conclusion. So by the time that Gemini was being reprogrammed in the fall of 1962, Paraglider had pretty much failed to make it to the starting gate. It was so far behind that it was really not possible to believe that it was going to be ready for the first orbital flight, which in turn meant that Gemini was going to have to develop a parachute recovery system anyways because they weren't going to be able to use the Paraglider, at least initially. So when Gemini went looking for ways to save a significant amount of money, it was not surprising that GPO should take a serious look at ending the effort altogether. In retrospect, I think it's actually kind of surprising they didn't pull pull the plug at this point, but I have the benefit of knowing what eventually happened. One does have to wonder if Jim Chamberlain's decision to stick with Paraglider, though, through the budget crisis may have been a significant part of his undoing. Now, it might have been different if Paraglider had overcome its initial rocky start and come through with flying colors, but it didn't. Well, the North American managed to finally run a successful half-scale helicopter tow test in the fall. When it moved on up to uh, a half-scale full deployment test, meaning they actually dropped the capsule from altitude, Um, the same pattern of, let's call it, a lack of requisite attention to detail in test preparation continued to occur culminating in a failed test in which the wing failed to deploy at all, and then the emergency recovery parachute system also failed, and the test capsule was completely destroyed. Which, if you remember, was the situation that the whole program had just spent seven months trying to prevent. Well, once again, NASA called a halt to the whole process. Once again, North American management was called in for a full, and frank, discussion about their ability to run a successful test program and their continued participation in the Gemini program. And once again, after assurances that steps had in fact been taken, North American was allowed to resume half-scale testing. And once again, after a couple of successful tests, North American managed to destroy another half-scale model when both the paraglider and the emergency parachute recovery system failed to function. Believe it or not, this was still not enough to kill the paraglider program outright. Instead, NASA scaled back its expectations on the paraglider even further. Instead of being the main landing system for Gemini, it was now downgraded to essentially an experiment. Upon re-entry, the paraglider would be redeployed in order to test it, and see how or if it worked. But the paraglider would be jettisoned at 3,000 meters, like 10,000 feet, and the capsule would descend on a parachute for landing. And even at that, the paraglider wouldn't be flown uh, until either like the ninth or 10th flight. So essentially, the paraglider was taken entirely off the critical path. It wasn't necessary for flight anymore, and it wasn't even an experiment until nearly the end of the program. But North American did have to qualify a full-scale parachute recovery system, which was a step up from the emergency parachute recovery system. And they almost managed to screw that up. 
And work on the new parachute system began in May of 1963. By August, North American had managed to conduct several full-scale tests, but they also managed to crash and destroy the test article again. It was not until November of 1963 that North American was able to convince NASA that they could provide a full-scale parachute recovery system. And they still had not gotten started on the reduced test plan for the experimental paraglider system. When they finally did, they were no more successful than they had ever been. Finally, in April 1964, when after two years of development, full-scale deployment test of the paraglider failed for the fifth time in a row, GPO finally pulled the plug. By then, Gemini had weathered some significant technical storms, and there just was no more time, money, or patience for the paraglider program. So, so that's the story of the one technical challenge that Gemini was not able to overcome. And it's really a bit of a footnote to history. I was actually surprised when I started reading about it, just how long the program stuck with paraglider, considering that it has never resurfaced and that both the U.S. and Russia still basically recover space capsules the same way they have been doing since the days of Mercury. Okay, well, that's pretty much all the time we have for this episode. Next episode, we're going to start talking about the things on Gemini that eventually did go right. And some of them were innovations that continued into Apollo and beyond, and some of which have proved to be more trouble than they were really worth, but they still flew on Gemini. So that's going to be it for now. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you again soon. Come on, let's keep the chatter down.